Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts for this channel, Lori Dickmeyer. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Nick Jepson about his new book, In China's Wake, How the Commodity Boom Transformed Development Strategies in the Global South. He tells us how he became interested in studying the impact of China's economic growth, and he introduces the main topic of his book that the commodity boom of 2002 to 2013 uh, produced economic growth for resource-rich countries of the global south from places like Argentina to Angola and many others. Uh, And this gave these countries the financial leeway and opportunity to turn away from international financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund or IMF. And this allowed them to set their own policy agendas, or at least it gave them the opportunity. Um, In some cases, uh, countries did not decide to turn away from neoliberal policies. Uh, Nick Jepson describes five typologies of resource exporters, again, three which turn away from neoliberalism and two which stay on that path. Uh, Then at the end of the interview, he reflects on trends and emerging patterns since the commodity boom. I hope that you enjoy his enlightening thoughts on the topic. Hello, welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today we're talking to Dr. Nick Jepson about his new book, In China's Wake, How the Commodity Boom Transformed Development Strategies in the Global South. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. Yes. Uh, Could you tell us by... Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a uh, research fellow at the moment uh, at the Global Development Institute. That's the the University of Manchester uh, in the UK. I'm uh, from uh, the UK, as you can probably tell. Um, And uh, I'm from Rotherham, which is kind of sort of Rust Belt post-industrial town in the north of England. Um, I am a political economist, I suppose, working on development uh, issues, but I have a background a little bit. My my history, uh, my undergrad was in, in mainly in history, uh, and I guess what I really study is sort of the rise of China in the 21st century and the implications for, of that for the rest of the world, particularly the, uh, the global south. That's that's fantastic. So I wonder if you could tell us um, how you became interested in this topic uh, and particularly how did you come to write this book in China's wake? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I, I think I say in the acknowledgments that uh, this started off as a PhD project and, and that is that is correct. This is a sort of, you know, very much updated and, and revised version of, uh, 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 you know, uh, or at least based on my, my my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. But the origins go back uh, quite a bit longer than that in many ways. I think, 
you know, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, and that's a, a long time ago now, it's 20 years ago now, <laughs> uh, I did an exchange year in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, and when I was there in Argentina, that was, um, uh, yeah, 2001, 2002, uh, right in the middle of maybe the worst economic crisis in, in Argentina's history. Uh, and uh, a lot of political strife going on. They had uh, the IMF there in an agreement, bailout with the IMF that committed them to certain conditions and certain economic policies, you know, very uh, uh, tight austerity policies, lots of cuts to public services. Uh, the economy was going through a major recession and these policies were, were clearly kind of making it worse. Um and I, I, I guess I struggled to understand how this was happening, given that uh, nominally, at least, the country was a democracy. These policies were extremely unpopular. Uh, and yet there didn't seem to be any alternative to, to kind of implementing them. Uh, and that's kind of what got me interested in these questions of sort of global political economy. Uh, and from that, I, I suppose I began to, to look at... Um, what if why there, there didn't seem to be alternatives in some countries uh, to those kinds of policies and, and under what conditions uh, those alternatives might emerge and that's sort of what led me to the the commodity boom and to to the effect of China on, on world markets mm, interesting uh, so now let's let's start to talk about your book a little bit uh, your introduction very clearly lays out your argument and your claims Um I wonder if you might walk us through your your basic outline that you have and your argument about China, uh, the commodity boom, and development in the global south. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, I, I guess I I, I begin from uh, you know the the facts of the commodity boom. So. Um, Around kind of the the first decade and a half of the the twenty first century, something like that, uh, you do begin to see this uh, this boom in commodity prices, and particularly for uh, fossil fuels and for uh, metals as well. Um, agriculture, to to some extent, but particularly look at, at, at metals and fuels here. Um, and uh, it quickly became obvious that. China was the sort of driving force behind that. I mean, you know, I could go into the, the sort of empirical uh, stuff maybe in a in a few minutes, but that uh, you get this sort of inflection point around 2002 where obviously um, China is uh, booming, uh, economic, has booming economic growth, growth since the, the late 1970s, but there's this inflection point around um the early 2000s, where it starts to require increasing uh, amounts of imported commodities rather than relying on, on domestic supplies. Uh, and it's that that I'm basically arguing is the, the major force that, that drives this, this boom in, in commodity prices. And then from that, the next step is to say, well, what impact does that have on um, countries which are exporters of these, these commodities? Um, and really, what I'm, I'm sort of saying is that uh, these uh, this commodity boom essentially provides a new stream of revenue for those countries, and that it is that revenue is largely beyond the control of uh, organisations like the the International Monetary Fund that I mentioned in, in the context of Argentina, uh, of of capital markets, of uh, donor countries, which donor agencies, which are important in many of these these developing uh, countries as well 
and that with that revenue um, comes a sort of shift in bargaining power between um, those commodity exporters, these resource-rich states, and um, those those are the sources of power, so the IMF and, and the World Bank, etc., and capital markets, um, and that um, that sort of uh, that revenue stream is then used by some of these countries to um, break with those those sorts of policies, um, uh, sort of liberal economic uh, policies. Um, uh, around this time, and you see a growth among some of these commodity exporters of a variety of sort of experiments and new new political economic uh, formation sets of policies that kind of um, flourish in this 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 era. And that, that I'm kind of trying to connect this to a larger argument about uh, sort of broad historical patterns in 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 uh, sort of shape and process of global capitalism and how um, uh, the, the rise of China can be seen as sort of a world historical uh, process within in that, that is kind of uh, uh, sort of rewiring some of the main sort of circuits of, of global capitalism. And uh, there's quite a lot of books written about China in the global south, China in Africa, China in Latin America, um, uh, China in Asia as well. Um, that, that tend was changing a little bit to to focus on the sort of direct uh, impact. So uh, Chinese loans, Chinese investment, um, these sorts of things. And I suppose what I'm sort of saying is that while all those things are really very important, it may be that this sort of second order effect, this indirect impact of um, China's effect as it rises and grows on uh, the global political economy and how that reshapes world markets uh, may open and close sort of different possibilities for development in the global south as it, as it goes, even if unintentionally in many cases, so that in some senses the indirect impacts may be more important than the, the direct ones. So, I mean, that's the, the sort of very basic structure, but we can flesh out the details as we go along, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and... Before we get into that, I think uh, the listeners would be interested in uh, how you went about uh, researching all of this and, and gathering your data. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your research process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, th- this started out, as I say, with this idea about sort of looking at, at emerging al- alternatives Um and and the kind of the, the noticing the 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 fact that they seem to be in in commodity exporting countries, uh, the connection to China and and you know reading about about that for for a large period of it and getting up to speed with how commodity markets work that sort of thing. Initially, this was going to be just a a comparison of of that process playing out in two countries. I think it initially started with Zambia and uh, Bolivia. Uh, but that then expanded to to three with using Jamaica as a counterfactual uh, case, which again we can talk about uh, in more detail in a moment if you if you want. Um, but uh, I swapped out um, Bolivia for Ecuador just because I thought the the sort of China facts was more evident there, and maybe the process of what was going on was a, a bit more interesting in, in some ways. Although Bolivia is very important too. 
Uh, and then so did did field work in those three locations, uh, interviews with uh, sort of political and economic elites, uh, really, uh, and then got into this qualitative comparative analysis technique, uh, which is still a qualitative method, but basically a way of um, maintaining a, a kind of case-based approach, but expanding uh, your ability to make comparisons. So uh, uh, being able to compare across, in my case, uh, 15 uh, different cases in a kind of systematic way. And, and from having to read into those different cases, uh, that sort of uh, gave me a broader perspective on, on commodity exporters in general. And from that, I began to think about patterns and response across them. And, and from there, I, I developed the typology, which has ended up being really the kind of centerpiece of the book, I think. Mm. Okay, so now I think we have a, a very good overview of your project. Uh, I, I hope we can talk about some of these individual chapters um, your first chapter is World Markets and China's Wake. And here you explain uh, how China can contributed to this commodity boom, uh, which you've told us a bit about already. But you also introduce um, some of the theory you're using or some of the uh, previous thinkers. So I wonder if you can tell us about uh, this idea of overlapping secular cycles of accumulation in your work, which you, you highlight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm aware uh, you're a historian, right? And I, <laughs> yes, I mean, that's I, right. I, <laughs> so I, I know most historians are, I think, in many, most cases, rightly skeptical about anything <laughs> that kind of smacks of sort of some kind of master process of history or uh, determinism and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, um, I, really, this is coming from uh, Giovanni Righi, uh as ideas is about the cycles of accumulation and, and him building on on Braudel's work. Um, also interested in sort of uh, uh, William Sewell Jr.'s uh, sort of take on this kind of eventful history, but the idea being that um, at a kind of level of abstraction, at least, then there is a kind of repeating pattern of crisis in, in capitalism. And the details may be very different, and that can be incredibly important in the way that these things play out. But that if you do look at uh, history stretching back uh, a few centuries, then there does seem to be an abstract kind of cyclical pattern of uh, kind of regimes of accumulation, let's say. So complex of, of different sort of uh, technological innovations of uh, political uh, structures, institutions, uh, cultures, all kinds of, of, of different things are very uh, complex to, to kind of uh, get into, but that, that those um, essentially foster the conditions for relatively stable economic growth worldwide, obviously with major variation uh, geographically, uh, for a, a particular period, you know, uh, a few decades, three or four decades, something like that, uh, which it eventually reaches, uh, kind of runs into the sand after a, a while because the sort of marginal gains that can be made from that particular way of organising the, the global economy uh, sort of um, uh, are gradually exhausted. The idea being that then you get an inflection point and a, a point of crisis, uh, at which point um, 
there's more of a shift to uh, uh, growth pattern based on on finance more than kind of material growth. Uh, eventually, the sort of contradictions of, of that uh, sort of um, become uh, too difficult to get over is a period of instability and, and volatility. Uh, and that what emerges from the uh, sort of ashes of that, I suppose, is that uh, another kind of uh, complex, another location in the global economy may be positioned uh, to, uh, you know, sort of best take advantage of the situation. Uh, and that then becomes the new centre of accumulation from which a new sort of cycle emerges. And uh, while I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that we are at the point of a new accumulation cycle starting or or anything like that, I suppose in one sense I'm sort of posing the question of, well, if that was happening, what would it, it, it look like? I mean, I, I would say that, you know, as, as Arigi points out, this phenomenon of cycles is, is you know, is according to him, a kind of empirical phenomenon, and it's something that, that needs to be explained rather than something that explains things. Um, but if we've seen that pattern repeat itself, at least an abstract level, a few times, uh, it, it could be, uh, you know, and, and this is where I've kind of distanced myself from the kind of Wallastinian kind of world system stuff, but clearly that's a, an influence. But it, it could be that, you know, if the pattern maintains itself, then what would this kind of look like? And it's at least possible to make the argument that, uh, you know, the nascent stages of a sort of new emerging regime of accumulation, possibly centred on China, uh, could be emerging. And that even if that isn't happening, what we are seeing is definitely a, a sort of new centre of accumulation in the global economy that, you know, I use this this expression a few times about sort of as China grows, its sort of weight in the global economy grows and its its gravitational pull on the rest of, of global capitalism uh, does as well, which means it, it, it sort of uh, is uh, driving accumulation processes which previously would have been centred on countries in the global north, particularly the United States. So that's the sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, deep theoretical background in which this this, these ideas are situated, but you know, I, I do want to stress it's uh, these aren't sort of mechanical processes that are determining everything that's going on or anything. Mm, uh, mm. These are just the broad patterns. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, as an historian, I did appreciate your your next chapter, chapter two, uh, which talked through shifting global regimes over time uh, regarding natural resources and development. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could walk us through some of those uh, touchstones of these major shifts in global regimes that do impact uh, the resource exporters that you look at in this book. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I I think, um, you know, going back all the way to kind of the the colonial era, then, then sort of commodity and resource extractions, being a, uh, a a kind of um, a fundamental aspect of um, development, however you understand uh, development, and uh, for some of the the, uh, the sort of European colonizers in in African countries, in Latin America and parts of Asia uh, too, um, that was associated uh, even to the extent of saying, well, 
you know, typically Europeans would arrive somewhere and see that uh, local people were not uh, necessarily exploiting the, let's say, copper resources which lay under their soil or something like this. And uh, it, it was to some extent part of the sort of, uh, you know, the the ideological kind of, uh, you know, so-called civilizing mission of the Europeans that, that the idea being that, uh, that the, these resources were put there to be exploited and if the local people weren't going to do it, then it was the, almost the duty of, of the colonizers to go there and, and dig it up and, and start using it. And uh, lots and, uh, you know, parts of, of what now make up kind of global economy during the colonial era were um, major sites of, of resource extraction, and that's uh, things like minerals and fuels, but it's also agricultural products as well. And uh, society's wholly reordered around uh, resource extraction. If you look at the history of somewhere like Bolivia and how important the silver mines were to the, the Spanish empire, um, for example. But um, moving into the, the kind of, uh, you know, the post-World War II era and the, uh, the kind of development project and, and that, that sort of ideology, uh, beginning with uh, particularly e. Truman uh, and in the Cold War context about uh, ideas like modernization theory and then, of course, competing Soviet ideas about development and sort of competition, Cold War competition uh, uh, in what at the time was known as, as the third world, uh, offers this sort of prospect of, of development, of in some sense, becoming more like one of these two, uh, you know, quote unquote, model societies in one way or another. And obviously, there's a big difference in terms of the the, the kind of the the advice that the Soviets given and and the Americans are giving. But there are commonalities as well, and a lot of it is around um, how to use uh, commodities in order to uh, to modernize, in order to industrialize, uh, and a lot of that is about um, developing uh, domestic industries by using commodity revenues to, to sort of do that. I mean, I won't get into the, the full ins and outs of, of that. I mean, there's some successes and, and some problems. Uh, there is a kind of inflection point around the, the 1970s um, where uh, obviously the 70s is the decade where you get the um, – Arab-Israeli war and the oil embargo, the OPEC crisis, the, the price of oil uh, peaks. Uh, and it looks as though in some senses this is a you know moment where some countries in the global south um, are, are maybe coming together, not just the, the sort of oil exporters, but you have the, the new international economic order. There's been quite a lot of scholarship um, about this, in fact, since I, I wrote the book. Um, and the idea of, of following OPEC's example and coming together as groups of, say, sugar producers or bauxite producers or, or whatever it may be, um, to act as a cartel and to try and set the price of your uh, exports rather than accepting the kind of world market price over which, you know, um, economic actors in the global north have a great deal more, more power um, than in the south. And so there's this moment of kind of challenge. Um, but to a large extent, it, it, it fails. And part of the reason is because um, not all it's it's harder to get those agreements, those cartels going in, in other areas than than oil, partly because, for instance, um, limiting oil supplies is, you know, not quite this simple, but more or less a, a matter of 
turning on or off the, the taps, whereas something like copper um, is a little more complicated um, than that, and it's harder to get agreements that, that sort of work. The other thing is is that, that uh, a lot of the countries that are, say, bauxite exporters or copper exporters are also oil importers. So economically, while the oil price, uh, you know, kind of the oil prices and the oil price spike is going on, um, they're also suffering economically because the price of their oil imports has gone up um, quite drastically. Uh, and in fact, in the 1970s, for a lot of commodities, you, you begin to see uh, a decline in prices, which leaves uh, many of these countries, which at this moment are pursuing this sort of developmentalist project, trying to build up their own domestic industries, trying to industrialize, trying to um, uh, uh, build up uh, their economies in, in, in various kinds of ways, um, are losing their economic basis to do that, the kind of export revenue. And so they end up covering it with increasing amounts of loans. And those loans are kind of fed through at the other end of the cycle by the oil boom itself, because you get uh, the kind of windfall profits uh, that particularly the OPEC uh, members, uh, I should say, by the way, in case anybody doesn't know, OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, mainly the uh, the Arab world, but, but uh, countries, uh, you know, in Latin America, Africa, Asia, also part of that. Um, but the OPEC uh, countries uh, reaping such windfall profits that they can't be profitably invested in their own domestic economies. So they end up getting deposited in uh, so-called euro dollar um, uh uh, accounts, particularly in, in London, and then uh, this kind of wave of liquidity into the global financial system eventually finds its way into relatively cheap loans to uh, the countries on the other end that are struggling, particularly commodity exporters in the global south, uh, that end up borrowing uh, more and more to, to cover their uh, development plans. Uh, in the late 1970s, and I won't go into the the, the background for this because it took another 10 minutes to explain, but uh, <laughs> you get in the United States the, the Volcker shock, the raising of uh, interest rates in the US, uh, which um, effectively raises the cost of borrowing for those countries which have already got themselves into huge amounts of debt, uh, sparks a debt crisis, particularly in Latin America and Africa, but across the, uh, uh, the, the third world as it was then. Uh, and that really sort of sets up the conditions for a shift towards uh, uh, neoliberalism generally. And do you want me to go on and, and say something about that? Um, I, I actually, uh, yes, you could. Um, but uh, I think we might also um, move on to talk about uh, how you decided to compare uh, the different countries in your study as well. So whichever direction you'd like to take, um, feel free. Okay, sure. So, I, I mean, I will just briefly say, I suppose, mm -hmm. that, that what happens is is that, because uh, I think this is important to set up the, the rest of the book, is that mm -hmm. in countries that have got themselves into a lot of debt and many commodity exporters among them, uh, the way that the debt crisis is dealt with essentially is by turning to international organizations like the International Monetary yes. Fund, 
um, who come along and, uh, you know, um, dominant ideology in, in those places by the late 1970s, early 1980s is what you can loosely call neoliberalism. And I won't get into the weeds too much mm. about what that means, but, uh, you know, kind of at the level of policy, essentially privatization, deregulation, liberalization of economies. Um, and these are the, through these, what are called structural adjustment plans, the, um, the policies that are presented as essentially conditions of getting these loans. And uh, the argument is, is that while it's not simply about the IMF going around the world and sort of imposing its will on different countries, you get many elites in the various countries that absolutely agree with these policies. The argument I'm making is that for countries that are in, a, in high levels of debt, from then on, it's not really possible for them to break with those policies um, because of the need to to please the IMF, to please capital markets, to to please international uh, donors as well. And really, the idea is that that's the um, the situation uh, at the beginning of the uh, commodity boom, and that that's the conditions under which um, uh, you know. Uh, I, I set up the argument about breaks from those sorts of policies being um, possible. So, mm. sorry, what was the the other part of the question? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I was I was uh, jumping ahead. We definitely needed to talk about neoliberalism. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I was kind of thinking ahead to to your third chapter when you sure. uh, set up this uh, issue of why you're looking at national indicators to measure this global phenomenon that is occurring. Um, so, I think that's important for us to understand. Then, um, you know, the rest of your book and your typology system and the different types. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the, the kind of that idea of this articulation between the global and the national level is, is sort of something I was very interested in and something I think is very important and quite hard, I, I think, to, to, kind of, to kind of get right and to sort of tease out. I mean, again, I want to stress that, you know, this isn't a mechanical process. I'm not talking about as in let's say, some of the, the crude versions of dependency theory in the 1970s or whatever, that uh, global forces determine local uh, events or local conditions or, or whatever. Um, but I'm just, I suppose I'm sort of saying that they, they kind of parameterize the, the, the options that are available to, to local actors. And, and the other thing I would say as well is that, uh, you know, without getting into the sort of theoretical roots of what exactly neoliberalism means or whatever, I think one of the easiest ways to sort of detect it is is simply in terms of national level policy sets. I mean, and it, it is nation states that make those policies uh, by and large, and and therefore that's the kind of site of analysis for this second part of the book, uh, which is about whether. Um, whether particular countries actually make a break with what I call neoliberalism is, you know, as a set of um, of economic policies is how I'm kind of uh, defining it and measuring it for these purposes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, so now I think we can get into this this typology system that you set up. Uh, so maybe you can tell us about. Uh, how you arrived at these five different typologies that you have for the resource exporters. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, how they were in some cases able to break away from neoliberalism and in mm -hmm. other cases not. Um, so what are the main factors that you were taking into consideration when you were doing uh, this typology? 
Well, I, I started to notice that there was a, a correspondence between the different kinds of policy responses that you see, and there's a variety of them, and the kind of, uh, in broad terms, the sort of state-society complex domestically in, in each country. So I, I pick out a couple of factors that I think are particularly important, and I think that the first one is about the domestic economic elite, the, the capitalists, if you like, the kind of capitalist class, however you want to term it. First of all, you know, kind of how, how large and kind of strong and unified or not is that group of people. But then also crucial, I think, is how autonomous that um, that economic elite is from, from the state. So there's a lot of uh, countries that I look at, say somewhere like Angola, uh, where there clearly are people that you would call capitalists, right? There are people that own businesses. There are a number of very rich uh, individuals with considerable economic power, but most of their economic power is is tied to the state in one way or another. So whether that is getting uh, contracts or licenses or uh, uh, is actually about controlling state-owned enterprises or, or those sorts of things. You don't have what you have in other countries, so let's say something like Peru or Argentina, uh, where you have a capitalist class which can exist relatively autonomous of whatever the state is doing, and therefore I think that makes a big, big difference in this. And, you know, we get into to the hows and whys and talk about each of the, the types, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other part is the, the kind of other side of that equation, which, you know, is broadly speaking, um, what I call popular classes and popular class movements. So the same thing about, you know, how strong and unified are, are these. And I mean, broadly conceived in the sense that partly talking about, uh, you know, kind of, well, I guess, working class in the traditional sense, uh, but I think particularly when you look at countries in the global south, you need to expand that. So also looking at workers in the informal sector, uh, in some cases, urban middle classes, uh, indigenous movements, uh, you know, so quite an expansive um, category um, there. And and that in, in various different ways uh, is essentially the basis of where these five types come from. And I think you can see a correspondence in the pattern of those social groups and how they relate to one another and the sort of policy directions that were taken um, during the spoon period. Yes. Uh, so now we can talk about uh, each of these uh, five types, I hope. Um, and it would be great if you can tell us a little bit about each and maybe also, you know, discuss some of these examples or maybe one or two of your main examples for each. So first we have the neo-developmentalist type of resource resource exporter. Uh, so could you tell us uh, what that was? And you were discussing Brazil and Argentina for this one. Um, so if you want to focus on one of those countries or tell us a little bit about both, uh, it's up to you. Sure. So with Argentina uh, and Brazil, I mean, yeah, so I call this the the neo-developmentalist type, that name comes from uh, the sort of uh, economic theories which were beginning to become pretty pretty popular in both countries, particularly Brazil around that time. Uh, essentially a kind of attempt to blend uh, sort of the, uh, the experience of the East Asian uh, tiger economies, the sort of export-oriented uh, growth 
uh, with some of the old kind of um, structuralist ideas of, of developing uh, national industries from that, that, that post-World War II period that I, I talked about before. And those ideas are kind of floating around in this time, but I, I think it's the boom that provides the, the kind of um, political opportunity for uh, for those those policies to be enacted by uh, forces that that uh, these ideas favour in a sense. So, I, I it, this this kind of I, w- I should say the the five types for each kind of ideal type. So this type I would say that the ideotypical features are that you have a relatively strong uh, and relatively unified uh, domestic capitalist class, but within that in this period, what the boom does is is um, uh, present conditions for the ascendance of the kind of uh, pro- kind of industrial productive uh, more domestically focused uh, you know uh, broadly speaking uh, uh, elements of that but then the other part of the kind of political coalition includes um, some key popular class groups so the the situation I was talking about right at the beginning in Argentina in the early 2000s you have um, uh, politically powerful movement of the the unemployed, for example, the the picateros, as they they were called, that get integrated into this kind of ruling political coalition that that takes power in the aftermath of that recession and really rides a commodity boom in order to implement a a quite different economic model in in, in many ways uh, that um, is uh, less wedded to kind of orthodox. Uh, liberal prescriptions, you know, there's more use of the state in terms of uh, favouring industrial producers, there's some limited um, import substitution industrialization, uh, but about supporting kind of creating kind of national champion companies and and, and upgrading competitiveness at home and abroad uh, with help of industrial policy uh, and some sharing of the gains. So you get things like minimum wage hikes, you get some kind of uh, social uh, redistributive schemes and those kinds of, of things. So, for example, in Argentina, I mean, we already talked about the uh, the, um, uh, uh, the sort of depression around 2001-2002. The context for that is that in the 1990s, the, the local currency, the peso, uh, is pegged one-to-one to the dollar, so it's, it's highly overvalued, which means that... Uh, the local economy is, is very uncompetitive. That means domestic manufacturing suffers. But actually what happens as well is a process of those companies getting more concentrated. So the survivors become more powerful, so to speak. So that means there's this kind of strong economic block um, that is is kind of uh, ready to assert itself when the conditions present themselves. Uh, you get this uh, period around 2002-2003, which is pretty sort of politically chaotic, uh, but a lot of emergency measures to deal with the, the sort of social suffering that's going on start as ad hoc schemes and then become part of the the sort of the new new uh, new model as it, it, it gets uh, developed, uh, particularly associated with the uh, the Kirshners, uh, Nestor and Christina, kind of populist uh, leaders, Peronists that come to power, Nestor in 2005, I think it is, and again, roll out this model of infrastructure spending. Uh, and I think what's important with uh, uh, Argentina and, and Brazil particularly is that, especially Argentina, uh, uh, they are relying on... Um, uh, in part soy exports here so it's a bit different from my focus elsewhere which is on uh, 
fuels and uh, uh, minerals, so metals, those sorts of things. Soy, I think, is the one kind of agricultural crop in all this, which which has this effect of empowering countries to to make these breaks. And the reason I think is first because it's uh, subject to the same sort of China effect. So what's happening in China is that as incomes rise, uh, people are adding more and more kind of meat to their diets, and that's particularly uh, pork in the the case of of China. Now Chinese pigs. Uh, tend to eat uh, soy that's grown in the US and it's grown in Brazil and it's grown in Argentina. Now, the other thing about the soy industry is that it's it's more mechanized and it's more uh, concentrated among a small number of firms uh, than most agricultural industries, which means governments can treat it a bit like an extractive industry like oil or mining in that it's relatively easy to tax, take the uh, the kind of windfall of this commodity boom uh, and then take the the rents from from that and and redirect it towards uh, your favoured economic model. So in this case, supporting domestic producers and also some amount of redistribution uh, under the the Kirchners in Argentina, um, particularly. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, so we have uh, another uh, interesting typology for us to discuss: the extractive oligarchic type. Uh, which you locate in Angola and Kazakhstan. Uh, so they were both, or they're both uh, two exporters of crude oil. Uh, what else did they have in common during the commodity boom? Well, these are the sorts of cases. I mean, I, I talked before about the the importance of whether there's a uh, domestic capitalist class which is is kind of autonomous from from the state, and I think in these two cases. Uh, that that's not there. There are, there are capitalists certainly, uh, but uh, they're very much tied to uh, sort of state patronage in terms of whether they're they're able to earn money or not, and unable to to operate domestically, and that that changes the sort of balance of power domestically. I think, and means that in these cases, um, the sort of the the main factor in in terms of whether they they make a, a break in. Uh, Policy orientation uh, depends really upon uh, those in charge of the state itself, so the, the bureaucrats, the political leaders, uh, these sorts of things. And uh, it, it, in in the case of the oligarchic extractivist type, I also think that the key factor that, that's determining that that decision, on, on, or not necessarily determining, but very important in the decision of uh, the kind of state managers uh, as to whether to make this break or not, is that in contrast to one of the other types, so that's the um, donor-dependent orthodoxy, which we'll talk about in a moment perhaps, uh, the, the difference is that there's no real history of depending on flows of aid as a, as a, a key uh, revenue source. So the argument is really that in the other type, so the donor-dependent type, uh, uh, there's a history of uh, relying upon flows of aid and therefore people in charge of those countries don't necessarily want to risk the relationships that they have built up with uh, donors over the previous decades and so are a lot more cautious about deviating from the kinds of policies that donors tend to want to see, which tend to be these these liberal economic uh, policies. You don't have that somewhere like Angola. So Angola uh, kind of, interesting case in the sense that 
it emerges, I mean, it's a very troubled uh, history. You know, they, they have mm-hmm. fights an independence war against Portugal uh, in the 1960s until the Carnation Revolution in the 70s. Then immediately a, a sort of civil war that's a, a proxy battle in the Cold War that only ends in the early 2000s. And at this point, um, uh, donors and the World Bank, etc., are very interested in talking to the, the, the government that's, that's come through that civil war. And uh, various negotiations go on and they want them to adopt, you know, the basic policy set of kind of liberalisation, privatisation, etc. Now, the Angolan government at the time is is not keen on this, partly because, you know, one of, one of the, the basic tenets of that, that neoliberal set of ideas is about really sort of um, uh, shrinking the state in some respects. And because this is a country that's just emerged from civil war, that state is not so keen on that idea. In fact, it wants to assert itself across uh, its its territory and amongst and along its domain. Uh, so they they unlike what happens in say Mozambique on the other side of the continent, which goes through a very similar process of civil war and uh, uh, independence war, followed by then liberalisation and going to donors, etc. Because of the oil boom and because of uh, you know the takeoff of, of uh, Chinese demand, especially uh, Angola finds itself in a position where it can say no to that, and it can can really sort of dictate its own terms to some extent. So you get a very different economic model that that that, that appears there, which is heavily focused on. Uh, Infrastructure, particularly building rail lines, urban redevelopment in the capital, uh, Luanda. It's not in any way inclusive development. Uh, it's very much focused on, you know, the needs of the elites and these sorts of things. Uh, but it is nevertheless, you know, fast growing economy. There is a sort of middle class of perhaps half a million people sort of nurtured, uh, purposefully by, by the Angolan state during this period. Uh, and I think Angola's uh, importance in some sense, because I, I do want to stress with all this that I'm not necessarily saying all these different sort of types and all the different experiments that go on are all necessarily favorable. Right. I mean, all of these things are for better or worse. It's simply making the point that the the uh, confluence of factors around this time of the commodity boom sort of opened the door for various experiments for better or worse. And. Certainly, it's a very distinct one in the Angolan case, uh, though there are similarities with, with, with Kazakhstan on that, that sort of um, state-led development model uh, and about, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, infrastructure-heavy development and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but, the, you know, this isn't, again, it's not necessarily inclusive development. It's not necessarily a positive for, for your average Angolan, although that's perhaps debatable. Mm. Uh, so... You also have a, a third typology here uh, that we haven't discussed yet, the extractivist redistributive type that is one of these types that uh, was also able to break away from neoliberalism. So I wonder if we might cover that and then move on to the other two types uh, you have remaining that were not able to to break away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh- in, in this case, with the what I call extractivist redistributive, so this is the, I suppose a lot of people would be familiar with this in terms of um, the, the kind of more radical uh, leftist governments of, of uh, the, the, the 2000s that appeared in Latin America, so Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, Venezuela, 
I, I grouped these together because I, I think that, you know, along those axes that I talked about, they have similar characteristics. So you have a capitalist class in these countries and it is relatively autonomous from, from the state, but it's also, uh, generally speaking, weak or, or divided. So I don't know, take the example of Ecuador, I believe is a bit similar in this regard that you have. Uh, in Ecuador, uh, a power center of the economic elite in the capital Quito, in the highlands, and then a, a, a different kind of rival faction in, in uh, on the coast in, in the commercial capital of uh, Guayaquil. Uh, and, um, you know, over various iterations, these, these two um, kind of uh, factions sort of almost fight each other to a standstill in a way. And the, the country is very unstable through the 1990s. Uh, and that that kind of division, essentially, along with the kind of material factors that appear through the commodity boom, presents an opening for different political forces to, to kind, of, kind of come through. And that what you get in all three cases is a sort of uh, populist uh, kind of... Um, uh, uh, movement, uh, you know, particularly in Venezuela and, and Ecuador with these sort of charismatic populist figures, very familiar in some ways from Latin American history. But all three governments come to power and, and kind of govern with this populist political style. So majoritarianism, sort of constant mobilization, use of referenda, refounding of the country, you know, so-called in, in the sense of new constitutions. Uh, which allows them to sort of overhaul their country's institutions and push through relatively radical agenda in the sense that, um, you know, a bigger role for the state, certainly. Um, a, you know, a, a much larger take from their their extractive industries uh, for the state, which is then redistributed in, in, in various forms with a focus on, on redistribution and on social spending. Uh, these three are sort of less successful, perhaps, or at least or, or maybe put less stress on, uh, you know, kind of uh, development in the sense of growing new industries and diversification and those sorts of things. Although Ecuador does make some attempts in, in, in that direction. Bolivia does too, just to some limited extent. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, I think, you know, if you look at, at uh, Ecuador, for example, under Rafael Correa, uh, you get the uh, tripling of sort of conditional cash uh, payments. Uh, so this, this human development bond, you get things like a um, uh, crackdown on the local financial sector. You get a big push in terms of public investment and new infrastructure projects. You get some quite ambitious attempts to build build new industries, those sorts of things which are not necessarily all that successful, but at least in kind of metrics of sort of poverty, inequality and those sorts of things actually does relatively well. Now, uh, until the commodity boom ends, of course, and then we start to get uh, a variety of problems, particularly and most notoriously in the case of uh, Venezuela. Mm. Yes. Uh, so we now turn to your two types of uh, resource exporters, that were unable to uh, break away from the neoliberal path for different reasons. So I wonder if we might briefly uh, touch on both of those. So we have the donor-dependent orthodoxy type first, uh, that includes Zambia, Laos, and Mon Mongolia as well. 
Yes. So this is the the point I was making before about the importance Mm. of where the countries have have a history of aid dependence. So I see these countries as similar to the the kind of Angola, Kazakhstan, the the, uh, um, oligarchic extractivist type, as I I say. But the difference is that they they don't break away. And again, there's there's, uh, not a, a large autonomous capitalist class in these countries. So that's what makes them similar to the the kind of Angola type, um, but that because these countries have a history of um, depending quite heavily on on flows of aid, I, my my kind of argument is that the the people in charge are reluctant to risk those relationships and so are a lot more cautious in terms of the policies that they they apply. And I mean, Zambia is one of the places that I I did field work. You do get a populist government, the Patriotic Front of, of Michael Satter. Uh, that, that wins power in 2013 and, in fact, looks like it might go down the kind of Ecuador-Venezuela route, um, but actually in many respects proves a lot more kind of kind of cautious uh, than that and more or less kind of sticks with, with orthodox policies uh, and similar in, in the other cases uh, as well. Uh, yes, and so we have now your final uh, type, the homegrown orthodoxy type. Um, so why did these countries uh, stay on the neoliberal path during the commodity boom? Well, I, I think you can kind of pair this type in some senses to the um, uh, to uh, the uh, extractivist redistributive type in some ways, uh, in that there is an autonomous capitalist class, uh, and there are also, in, in some cases, uh, popular movements in, in these countries as well. But because the capitalist class in the, in these countries, the, the sort of local uh, domestic economic elite, is uh, more kind of uh, powerful, uh, more unified, uh, it, it, and is able to kind of, um, and these are all very schematic, of course. It's it's kind of described a lot more kind of nuance in the book, of course. But um, yeah, that that those those groups are are able to kind of kind of hold on to power. And that uh, they're no longer constrained by kind of global market conditions. The option is there for them to to go for a more kind of uh, uh, radical direction if they they wanted to. But here I'm arguing that the uh, the domestic kind of capitalist groups there are more uh, outward oriented than say a Brazil or, or Argentina. That they're more partnered with. Transnational capital, particularly located in the, the global north. So, you take Peru for example. You have uh, quite a an important domestic uh, mining sector, uh, which is heavily kind of uh, mixed in and and partners with transnational mining firms as well. So, their interests are relatively uh, shared. And I, I argue that really it's it's that route that is sort of um, you know kind of the most influential factor in. In, in keeping these countries along that sort of uh, uh, relatively orthodox uh, road. Although there are, you know, here and there policies which do change, the space is there, it's just not exploited because it's not seen as being in the interests of those groups that continue to retain uh, political and economic power. Hmm, yes. So you have one final chapter in your book after you've uh, gone through these typologies and in this chapter, you reflect on your major findings and you also consider current and future scenarios about 
commodity price movements, China's trajectory, and political economic impacts. Um, so I wonder if you might reflect on this now. It's been a little while uh, since your book came out, not too long, but um, perhaps you have new insights on, on this. I don't know. Uh, what changes have we seen uh, since the commodity boom of 20, or sorry, yeah, 2002 to 2013? And, and what might we expect in the future? What are your thoughts? I think I think the first thing to say is that uh, the commodity boom obviously it, it did end. So um, you get a fall in commodity prices from around 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh, partly because growth slows a bit in China, and uh, partly as well is because there's a sort of lagged supply response. So when prices go up, uh, various commodities that that spurs a, a kind of global drive for. Investment, so there are uh, various companies looking for new sources of uh, copper and iron ore and nickel and oil and etc. Uh, and once those start to come online, then obviously supply increases, and then that starts to, to push prices down again. So there's a cyclical element to this, and you certainly see an impact in terms of political and economic trajectories. And I, I think in some ways it sort of reinforces my argument because what it's saying is that when these global conditions no longer obtain, I suppose, uh, that the constraints uh, on policy uh, are tightened again, you know, the, the kind of the ability of um, these countries to forge an independent path is undermined by, by the disappearance of the commodity revenue and the need to turn back towards global capital markets and donors and, and the IMF and these sorts of things. And even at the time when I was writing the book, you know, that the most of these sort of different uh, kind of breaks or experiments had uh, fallen by the wayside in a variety of different ways. So already mentioned, you know, you get a, a collapse completely in, in Venezuela, horrendously so. Uh, you know, um, uh, you get a return of neoliberalism in, in uh, uh, places like Argentina and Brazil, also to some extent in, in Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, you know, you had the, the sort of uh, the, the coup and then return of Morales's party. And I think that that's something since I, I wrote the book that, that maybe looks kind of interesting in the horizon is that even though commodity boom has come and gone and, and those conditions aren't there anymore, it has left an lasting impression on a lot of these countries' politics. So, for instance, in Argentina, you've had um, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner come back as a sort as vice president now and, and under a government that's sort of Peronist and sort of a bit bit leftist but but maybe softer than than previously. Uh, in Ecuador, Korea uh, left after ten years and and you get a return of neoliberalism there under his sex uh, successor uh, Lenny Moreno. Uh, but uh, Andres Arauz, who's kind of Korea's um, candidate may well win the election that's coming up this month and and as i say you know morales party back in power in, in bolivia and so i i think the test for these kind of you know uh, leaders that may may come back and may still inherit some of the ideas from their commodity boom era predecessors is what are their plans going to look like in an era where the the uh, conditions look very different where um, even before the impact of the pandemic of course uh, mm. where commodity prices are relatively low where levels of debt are rising and i guess the fear is you know coming back to something i said near the beginning of this that the fear is that maybe we're going through a repeat of 
the 1970s in some ways, right? So you get this, to some extent, a kind of challenge um, in a very different way from from countries in the global south uh, to the the prevailing uh, political and economic order. But the sort of overextension that happens from that and the indebtedness that happens from that then stores up problems and you, you, you end up with this kind of sovereign debt crisis, which is beginning to happen now. And a very interesting question as to how, you know, these governments are going to, to deal with these very different conditions now, I suppose. Mm, fascinating stuff. Um, well, Nick, we've taken up a lot of your time and we don't want to keep you, but we do have a traditional question we ask at the end of these podcasts, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, actually, um, exactly the question I was just talking about, which is not necessarily those specific uh, governments, uh, but uh, on on debt and particularly on China still. So China's role as a uh, as a creditor, as a lender of money to countries across the, the global south for particularly things like infrastructure projects, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, this sort of thing. And um, because, I mean, this started before the pandemic and before, you know, countries started running into to major, major problems in terms of being able to repay their loans. But we sort of know what happens when a country struggles to put, repay its loans to, to say, the IMF and how the, the process works, that it has for a bailout and all that. But until very recently, we've known virtually nothing about what happens when countries struggle to pay back China. So the project was really about, about looking at, at that. And it's become much broader and I, I think a lot more immediate in some ways with the, the COVID uh, crisis, because you have a lot of countries that are exactly in, in this position. So um, particularly looking at a uh, different range of countries. So Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Kenya, probably Montenegro in, in Europe as well. Um, so quite a different project, but still about China's impact on on development and on the, the global political economy. Yeah, that sounds like a, a, a great project to, to work on right now. Um, well, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I know from reading your book that I learned uh, a lot about uh, China's impact on all these different countries around the world. And it was really fascinating. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Books in Chinese Studies, part of the New Books Network. 